You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Today's episode is something a little different. We are joined by Samantha Rocky to look at the ways that psychology, teams and high performance overlap. Sam has just co-authored the book, The Social Brain, the Psychology of Successful Groups. She is an Associate Fellow at the Oxford University Syed Business School and is one of the co-founders of the consultancy Thompson Harrison. She also co-hosts one of my favourite podcasts, Ghost Lights. Some of the highlights from the interview with Sam were her thoughts that it's through team membership and in particular the team's leader that people experience the culture of the organisation they belong to how the focus of leaders should be to create other leaders so that they can create a ripple effect through the organisation. And the importance of disrupting your teams by bringing in ideas and stimulus from outside and making sure that the membership is diverse. This was a great conversation with Samantha and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go, if you like what we do here at The Great Coaches Podcast, then head over to our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com 
There you will find exclusive video and audio content that you can download and share with the other people in your team to bring a different context to the challenges and opportunities that you're facing. You can also sign up for our newsletter where we bring together the best ideas from the podcast into one quick and concise email for you to read every week. And now, please enjoy our interview with Samantha Rocky. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Samantha Rocky, good morning and welcome to the Great Coaches podcast. Good morning, Paul. Lovely to see you, even though it is on Zoom. Sam, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long, long time. We've known each other for many, many years, and you've put out this amazing book, and I can't wait to pull it apart for you and find all the lessons that are appropriate for the audience. But Sam, something easy to get us going. Where are you in the world, and what have you been up to so far today? So, Paul, I'm in Guildford in Surrey in the UK. I haven't done much this morning, I have to be honest. I've fed the dog. I've watched the dog in the garden. I And I've sent my young people off to work, to their various workplaces. Um, and by young people, I mean my children. Um, so I haven't been hugely productive, but it's a fantastic morning. The sun is shining and it's about 8 a.m. So all is good. It promises to be an excellent day. Well, Sam, I'm very excited to talk about the social brain, the psychology of successful groups. And I wanted to start actually by talking about the fact that the book focuses on the cultural magic is what what you call it. Those are the words you use that makes an organization feel truly human. And as you say, create a sense of connection and belonging. So, but Sam, what I wanted to start by asking you, it's based on all the research you did in the book and all the experience you have in the corporate world. What do you think are the benefits that you have seen for groups that try to make themselves feel more human? Well, I think in my many, many years working in organisations um, and particularly teams, because I think culture happens at the at the level of the team. Um, and then expands out from there. So how people experience work is often affected by the teams that they work in. In fact, it's always affected by the teams that they work in, um, and particularly the leader of the team and their colleagues. Um, So by really focusing on creating a space in which everybody in that team feels that they're able to bring themselves to work in the best possible way, um, it's an unleashing of um, people kind of ask why one would pay attention to creating teams that feel culturally safe, that feel a place in which people are able to bring their ideas, that people are able to speak up um, and to talk about what's important to them. They're able to lean into work that really gives them meaning. Um, Essentially what we're doing is we're allowing the full expression of human potential. Um, And it strikes me very frequently actually when I'm working across lots of different organizations that you could have exactly the same configuration in the team. You could have seven people, they could have a leader, they could be essentially working on similar kinds of projects or tasks or focus areas. But there will be a huge difference of experience of what it feels like to be part of that team. And that has been the work that has always interested me. And increasingly, as we talk to people about our book, we know that there are components that will really add that magic and that will give people a real sense of of feeling connected. I see this every single day 
in my work. And I think that the kind of latent potential that exists in some teams is heartbreaking. It's unproductive. It's inefficient. It just is a complete waste of human resource. So our real approach with the book is about how you flip that. How do you make sure that we get the full expense of what is out there and in in there actually also? I mean, how people are feeling within themselves in the greater context. Sam, in the book you say, and this is a quote, it is a leader's job to create an environment within which people can thrive, both as individuals and as a collective. This is as true for a hockey team as it is for a multinational insurance company. Now, you work with leaders all the time through your work with with Oxford and through through your own consultancy. But with, do the leaders that you work with do they ta- does it take you long to convince them that this is actually their role? I think some leaders, yes. I think I think leadership is one of those odd anomalies where people don't put up their hand early in their career and say, I really want to manage a large team in 10 years' time. It comes upon people um, and often for not necessarily all the right reasons. So, And we know this from, from all the research that there are many, many people who are technical experts, um, but because they're so expert in their area, they get promoted into being a leader of a team. And I think the, the requirements for a leader is a very different ask. Um, and I think that for some leaders, this comes... I wouldn't say naturally, but many people have experienced what it's like to be led by someone um, that has been really good for them. So they have a role model, they have a template. Um, but for some people where they haven't experienced that, they're they're kind of technical experts being forced now to lead a large team. Um, and they actually just want to do the work. It's We talk a lot about it in the book, actually. It's exhausting on many levels to be always thinking about the human side and the relationships, because it's cognitively much easier to focus on task. So the ask of leaders is a stretch, actually. We're asking people to do something that is actually more tiring and more energizing and wonderful in in many, many ways. But it's not an easy, it's not the easy thing. The easy thing is staying as a technical expert and doing your, doing your work that is just simpler cognitively. Um, so we talk about the the relationships in our book and how important it is to create healthy, productive relationships. And of course, it takes up a lot of energy, which is why when we co-authored with Pro, uh, Professor Robin Dunbar, he's known for the Dunbar number, which is the, ex- the number of productive relationships you can have at, at any given time, which is about 150. There's a real acknowledgement that there's a kind of that there's a brain size capacity. So for every new relationship you create and you connect with new people in your team, you're having to give something else up um, because we can't maintain an endless number of relationships. So I think, Paul, convincing some leaders is a tough job. And and for some people, it just is not really what they're necessarily interested in doing um, and, and what necessarily will give them joy and happiness either. And I think we really need to recognize that. But of course, for other leaders, it's a magnificent opportunity. They absolutely love the opportunity to grow and develop people in their teams. So Sam. that's probably not as an optimistic answer as my, as one might want. But I think it, it, just to go back to the beginning of when people get selected for these roles, um, 
I think we 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 need to live in an organizational world in which it's fine for some people to remain with technical expertise and not being and it's not connected to the promotion into leadership. There'll be a lot of people nodding when they hear about you talk of the exhaustive nature of leadership. And, and of course, you do talk about the Dunbar number as well, which is the number of, I think I encoded it as the number of relationships we can have with a product productively at any one point in time. But S Sam, what can people do as people lead increasingly larger groups of people and they become more distant from the people they're leading? Is there anything they can do to improve the quality of their relationships as that distance expands? I think that's such a brilliant question because what we're always grappling with in organizational settings is scale. Um, and we don't talk, you know, it's, it's not part of the conversation really, which is one of the reasons that we actually wrote the book is because we think scale is such an important component of successful organizations and successful groups. Um, we use the quote that you can only really be seen in small manageable groups. So, any of us can only really be known and seen in small groups of other humans, in small social groups. That is our evolutionary legacy, so to speak. Um, so the, the the kind of permission given to leaders really to, um, even as their organizations expand in size, is to really focus on developing other leaders, is kind of having a ripple effect. So if you might imagine throwing a pebble into, into water, is that the leader need you know if the leader is the pebble in this in this example is that what they're doing is that they are building out from the middle so that every single layer has good leadership because once you reach the number of about 150 as a leader you can't know people people are projecting all their hopes and fears on you 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 really are just an image um so you know, to acknowledge that you can't, in an organization of 10,000 people, be known as you truly are. All you can do is you can build out the brilliant leaders in the next concentric circles and imagine that you that that is your job, that is your role as a leader, um, taking the values and the purpose of the organization and kind of weaving them through uh, the work that you do. So I think the first acknowledgement is that when you are leading a team, is that there is a constraint to how how known you'll ever be um, and more focus on building leaders around you. And that is one of the key focus areas of our book, actually. How do you build good leadership around you? Um, and we know that about 60% of people's social time is spent with just 15 people. Um, and that, you know, we, we are not spending as leaders huge amounts of time with big groups of people. We just cannot. It's impossible. It's beyond the human gift. So it is about growing those around you. And I think sort of the first act of real leadership is doing that, actually, is focusing on growing that leadership around you. It's interesting, Sam, you use the pebble analogy to illustrate the, the impact a leader can have. And you you talk about that in the context in the book around micromanaging. In fact, I've got another quote from here and I'd like to read it to you before I ask the question. You say, it is not a leader's job to micromanage an organization, but rather to design a structure within which it can become a self-correcting learning community 
that changes as it develops. I love this idea of self-correcting and learning and evolving without the leader having to be the person that propels that forward. And I'm just wondering, Sam, has there been something in the last few years that's that's caught your eye, that's a really good example of this type of leadership uh, being played out? I think there are lots of different examples, and we see this in the work that we do. Some people do this incredibly well. Um, I think for anyone who's ever worked in an organization, the idea of control over people around you, which is is another form of which is a form of micromanagement, is so destructive. And in fact, I was reading uh, a piece of uh, a book by Paul Gilbert, who's a, a famous psychologist who wrote The Compassionate Mind, and he says that sixty to seventy percent of people are stressed because of the behavior of their superiors. He uses the word superior because we are hierarchical in nature. So people who are seen hierarchically as more as as um, more superior to us can create great levels of anxiety and, uh, and stress. Um, the Gallup survey that came out about two weeks ago says that 10% of UK workers are engaged, which is quite, these are shocking numbers, really. So there's something in the mix. And I think micromanagement is the kind of ultimate expression of poor leadership, because in a sense, it's about trying to control what is actually uncontrollable. So we've really flipped that idea and we've drawn on companies like Gorn Associates who have a lattice structure. So they are always thinking about growing the leaders around them, about thinking of their own organization much more as a kind of horizontal effect rather than a traditional pyramid hierarchical structure. So there is something in the design of organizations, in the thinking around bringing people together around a common purpose um, and having a light touch leadership that is much more focused on principles rather than rules, that is focused on giving people an outcome to focus on rather than the uh, the input behavior, which is, which is where you really do see micromanagement come up against um, against this particular challenge. So we do have lots of examples in our book where people have really thought about this carefully um, and structured their organizations accordingly. So I think, Paul, there are lots of people being quite experimental in this space, and it's often got to do with thinking about the design of their organizations in a very different way um, and not, not going to the classic pyramid design, which is very brittle and really only sort of benefits the people right at the top. Um, so thinking it much more as a lattice structure, thinking of the interactions between individuals um, and thinking of how the leader can unlock that potential, potential and really thinking about things in a more of an organic and ecosystem way. And, and we see organizations doing this and it goes against the traditional industrial revolution idea of, you know, the, 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 the kind of uh, production line, which is, very mechanistic um widgets and you know bolts and whatever like organizations don't work like that organizations are made up of people in relationship with other people um and how do you you know create that interaction as the place in which ideas come and the work happens um and organizations that really understand that do this well but it's tough it is tough Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, Samantha, if it's any, any consolation, we've had a couple of coaches, only a couple out of uh, 100 plus that we've interviewed, talk about letting micromanagement go and the results that came from that. And the most famous story came from uh, an Australian rules football club we have here in Australia called the, the Richmond Tigers. And their coach went on a journey that started by attending Harvard, actually. He went and did an authentic leadership course and he came back and he realized that he needed to get behind, away from his keyboard and start engaging a little bit more. So I think there is also evidence in the sporting world that moving away from micromanaging can can really work. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about pyramids and lattices, um, yep. which was the language you used. And I think there is a danger, I, I feel, in any team that they can become too inward looking. They can become too focused on their relationships. They can become too focused on making sure that there is a very comfortable environment for everyone to express themselves. And they can be too inward looking and that can lead to groupthink. Now, I just am curious to see or to, to hear your thoughts on how the best teams ensure that this doesn't happen. We've thought a lot about that question, Paul, because I think – you know, one of the sort of premises of of understanding how social groups work is that we're all drawn to hierarchy in some form. Humans love hierarchy. I mean, we love to know who who who's in charge. Let's put it like that. But at the same time, we're incredibly drawn to autonomy and to being empowered and to having a sense of our own agency. So we're always running in this tension and, and we can't, um, we can't ignore that fact. We have to, within the idea of how we've designed organizations and how we think about organizations, we do have to acknowledge this tension. Now, of course, what you're describing is where you've crossed a threshold, essentially, where things get too cozy. Um, and we've got a wonderful or a, a sort of wonderful way of expressing that these moments of threshold, you know, for culture, it's when you move from culture to cult. Um, there is a moment where you can see this really intense culture in which nobody else is really invited. That's not what good culture looks looks like. But you you can feel it when you go into some organizations. There's such a sense of us and them. Um, so there are these thresholds that exist. And I think your threshold about groupthink um, is absolutely spot on. We've got we we use some wonderful examples in our book, but if a group of people are brought together to do a project, for example, um, it's really comfortable if you're with people that you know. You can get to the answer 
really quite well and in a in a quite a joyful way you know working with old colleagues who you've got a history with and so on but it's not necessarily the most innovative way so there has to be a way of bringing in some form of disruption all the time and a lot of our work is about what is the right level of provocation needed to mix things up a little bit but it's not always it's horses for courses because sometimes you just want to solve a technical problem and then getting a group of experts together who can shortcut it really quickly, who can use language that everyone understands at speed. It's a crisis. That's the kind of group you'd want to put together. But if you want to do something more expressive, more innovative, more future-oriented, then you need to design it really quite differently. So once I'm, I'm talking about organizational design again, is being really thoughtful about how you construct those project groups. And I think from a lot of the work, and many people will will describe this, is that actually having a polymathic approach, bringing in a wide range of experts to solve a knotty problem is probably one of the most effective ways of getting to an innovative solution. Um, and, and history, you know, is awash with examples of where really difficult uh, problems have been solved by bringing in people from completely diverse perspectives. But there is a caveat to that. It's harder and more difficult because it requires work up front. And it's the work up front that is the um, the invitation. Because once that team has had a way of connecting and building relationship, then the possibility is there. So uh, the examples that we use in our book are things like where people bump into each other at the water cooler, for example, and have an interesting conversation. Well, in this case, it was a Xerox machine, um, the founders of the MNR sort of technology, which was then later used for the COVID vaccine, um, came from two completely different perspectives. So we do need this in teams to be innovative. That's an absolute, um, that's absolutely critical. But at the same time, we also need to recognize that there's some work that needs to be done at the front end to get it right. Sam, can we talk about that work at the front end? Because you cover in the book, you, you talk about it in the sense of belonging. Now, the process of welcoming new people into teams, into the sporting environment, you've got one extreme, which is the, you know, the New Zealand rugby team, the All Blacks that have these routines and rituals and, you know, handing over new caps, handing over jumpers. There's these rituals that, that are really celebrated through generations, but in other groups, it's just as simple as a as a handshake. But what have you learned around the initiation, the work up front that needs to happen with new team members in order for that innovation and magic to happen? I am big on ritual, on taking time out for connection, on being strategic about it, as strategic as you would be about a marketing strategy or finance strategy, we need to be strategic about our social strategy. We need to have a social strategy. We've just done some research with um, Gen Zs, um, which obviously in, in every single media article you read about the younger generation, um, it just sounds, you know, that you know, no one wants to work and basically, you know, too sort of precious to spend time at work and so on. Um, and and we we kind of pushed against it and said, well, is that true? I mean, are young people like that? Well, of course, unsurprisingly, they're not. They're human beings who want to go into the workplace and derive great comfort 
by the rituals. So knowing that every Friday people are going to have lunch together, you might not want to opt in, but knowing that it's there, um, knowing that you are going to be greeted by your team leader on the first day of work. We have really um, sort of explored the importance of beginnings and endings. And your All Blacks example is a wonderful example, isn't it? Owen Eastwood talks about it in his book, Belonging. The kinds of things, the, the sort of gentle introductions into this world in which you are part of for a period of time, you won't be there forever, but you're, you have an opportunity to really leave something that's so powerful for the next generation. Um, so I, I think having being really committed to this idea of what these important pieces are that make a person feel like they're connecting to something and that they belong to something, I think is critical in organizations. And I reflect on my own, an organization that I was part of for nearly 18 years. There were absolute rituals, you know, uh, things that happened regularly and that gave a great sense of structure around what the culture expected and what I could contribute to that culture in turn as well. So it was a conversation. It wasn't an imposition. And I think that is the that is the joy of rituals and traditions um, and, and ways of practice that are consistent, but that are open-ended enough that people can also feel that they can contribute to the changes. I mean, we don't want culture to be a static thing. Tradition. Let's talk about that for a minute because your team at Oxford is not far from where the the annual and very famous boat race takes place. And I'm just curious, Sam, what have you learned, if anything, from observing that over the years? Well, uh, full disclosure, I haven't observed the boat race, but I have observed another tradition at Oxford, which really stuck with me, actually. Um, I attended a graduation and when the graduation began, it, it first of all it was held in the most beautiful building that had been, you know, been around in Oxford for for generations. Um, but the person who was leading the graduation said some of this will seem somewhat obscure, and a lot of it is in Latin still, and obviously no one speaks Latin anymore. Um, she said, you, you know, but I do want to say that um, we have kept the traditions of the graduation in Oxford because. For every person who walks through these doors as a graduate, what you are experiencing is exactly what others before you have experienced. And in a sense, we're all here because of those before us. So acknowledging that long line of people who came before us, I think, is a very powerful human need. Um, and it also creates a sense of responsibility, actually. I'm here because in the future, there will be those that come come after me. So what am I doing to contribute to the sense of to the sense of of connection and importance? Um, and I think humans in a sense are we're wired to to feel the sense of connection to our past. And I think that happens well through traditions. By the way, I would not have said this when I was much younger. This is this has come to me as I've gotten older. I think when I was younger, I thought all traditions were terrible and probably I would have sat in that graduation and thought, gosh, let's get it into English and have a bit kind of more modern music. But in retrospect, now I'm really thankful that that hasn't happened actually because it was quite beautiful um, and you really got a sense of the connection to the past. So I, I, I'm, 
I'm a fan of ritual and tradition, the right rituals and traditions, by the way, not anything that's not not healthy and productive and empowering. Well, you you talk a little bit about yourself in the book. You go into your backstory and you were a part of, you you grew up in South Africa and you were there pre-apartheid and you worked in the post-apartheid South Africa. So you saw a lot of change. You saw cultural shifts. You saw societal shifts, people's mindset shifts. But the story that you shared in the book that really stuck with me was singing. Now, I know it's going to sound a bit strange, but you had a choir at work. There was a choir and that choir got me thinking about the role that singing plays because it's a very big part of sport, particularly um, not so much, you know, in Australia, but particularly in England, the crowd sings, teams have songs, people are always engaged in in, in singing. And I've, I'm intrigued again, Sam, to just understand what you've learned around the power of singing and perhaps even just voice when it comes to teams. Well, I think, I mean, we were doing a podcast a week ago with Robin, our co-author, and someone said, you know, what is the most effective way that you can get to fast track connection? And he said it's singing. And he he uses this example all the time because most organizations are not going to be starting their morning singing together. Although there are some organizations, by the way, who have done that. Um, but we, we, we typically don't sing at work, but it is an the fastest way to connect with those around you. In fact, singing together has been proven once you've had sort of half an hour of singing with your colleagues or your friends or, in fact, complete strangers, you feel a real connection with with that person and with that group. So we have, as almost as humans, been designed in a way to sing together, and it is a fantastic bonding experience. So... What I learned from that little example um, was that the mere act of having a group of people coming together to sing did something incredibly important about, you know, that was healing. Um, Growing up in South Africa, people sing all the time. I mean, you know, beginning conferences, they'll be singing. I mean, I I kind of feel like singing is very much part of, of, of the culture and tradition, which is, it was absolutely wonderful. So like ritual and tradition, I'm a big fan of singing as well, singing together. I mean, I'm a terrible singer, so it's not like I would want to start my own choir, but I just think um, we did a little exercise yesterday that involved a bit of music, and I kind of thought wouldn't it be fantastic if we all sang along now. It would just be a way of getting this whole group on the same page together really, really quickly. So big fan of singing, um, and you mentioned the um, Oxford and Cambridge boat race, actually, and I was reflecting on this idea of synchrony, walking together, rowing together, anything which we do in synchrony with another human being or other groups of humans is a fast track to connection. So if you don't want to sing together, which might seem a bit extreme, the other option is to go for a walk with somebody. Um, we call them walk shops, um, and that is walking in synchrony with a partner and the depth of conversation you might have. Um, and the other little example, which might once again seem a bit obscure, but actually works very effectively, is doing an activity together, which is out of completely out of both of your comfort zones. So at the moment we're working 
in in partnership with the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Um, and we've got a group who are focusing on building belonging. And we're working with somebody who who's a, the curator of um of painting. And he is encouraging people to work in small pairs. Well, of course they would be small, they are pairs, in, in pairs together. Um, using charcoal to draw portraits of each other. And these are people who've never met each other before. And the power and depth of the conversation, when you're really looking at somebody else and you're doing something which is really creates laughter, which, by the way, is another way of fast-tracking connection. Um, you're doing something in synchrony. You're both drawing each other. You're having a different quality of conversation. So it doesn't have to be singing, Paul, but there are lots of things we can do in synchrony with um, with people to create that connection. Sam, you started off by talking about the kids and I asked you where you are in the world and what you've been doing. You've had a great career in the corporate world and now you've crossed over, you've, you've created your own business, you work with Oxford and you've written this fantastic book that's allowed you to interview leaders from all over the world. What changes have you made to your leadership style at work or your life at home based on what you've discovered? That's such a good question. Um, I think there are lots and lots of different changes that I've made. Um, you know, starting this process, I was in a corporate environment. And I think when I reflect back on that, on the ecosystem, and it connects to what you said earlier, Paul, is that when one works in a large organization, it's quite easy actually to lose sight of what's going on externally and being really mindful of the challenges and the sort of stresses and strains that people might be experiencing outside of your own quite cozy ecosystem. Um, so when I left a large corporate, I was able to sort of turn outwards a bit more, I think. Um, and that has been that has been a wonderful gift. So I think my leadership feels more externally oriented, which has been great actually, and bringing in different kinds of ideas. From a personal leadership point of view, I have really committed to a practice of being more mindful and being more present. And I think never it probably feels so urgent at the moment with social media and with access to digital and we're living in an AI, you know, in an AI dominated world. Well, it feels like that anyway, if you, if you read the media. So building those human connections and beginning with self and a sense of calm and gathered self I think is the place I always begin when when talking to other leaders and when thinking about myself actually is is how do you begin each day in a centered fashion because leadership after all is about your relationship with your own self and making sure that it is in the best possible way and space and then expanding that outwards so I think as a parent, certainly I have thought a lot about doing the things that we're talking about. So walking together, doing things in synchrony, being absolutely present to, to my children um, as much as I can be. And it's a big ask because we are bombarded on the daily, but really, really trying to do that. And I always use the example of some leaders that um, that that we've worked with over the years. It's the best leaders I know are the ones who have ease, actually. The idea that they can have a meeting with you, a conversation with you, and they have ease. They can sit back in their chair and they can look like they have all the time in the world. 
And I think that is the greatest gift as a leader to really feel like you are in a space in which you can see other people. People shine when they are fully seen. So I think both as parents and as leaders, um, if we can really see someone else. I love this greeting from South Africa, Saubona, which means I see you. And I always draw on that because this absolute human need to be seen um, and then to feel seen. There is no greater gift than that. I was reading a brilliant book on friendship and someone, and, and I remember a particular quote saying that the gift of friendship is that your friend sees you and in return you see them. Um, so yeah, so I would say that that's my big leadership lesson is really being present and beginning with self and practicing a bit of mindfulness and meditation and gratitude. How lucky we all are. Samantha, it's a great book. I loved it. We didn't even get on to Thriving Teams today, which is another, which was possibly the part of the book that resonated with me the most. But I'm hoping we can uh, follow up and talk about that more in depth. But it's been wonderful listening to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and energy with us. And I look forward to chatting to you more in the future. Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you very much for giving me the time to talk about my book. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Samantha about the psychology of successful groups and found a few ideas that you can bring for discussion with your own teams. All the details about Samantha's book and how you can contact her are in the show notes. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. We love the interaction with all the people around the world who listen, and it gives us great energy. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.